2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. And as you guys know, we have been uh, talking about the miracles of Elisha and going through. We started in chapter 2 of 2 Kings. We went 3, 4, 5. We've just gone all the way through this, these few chapters of 2 Kings because they have gone together so well. And just to recap the whole thing, Elisha followed who? Elijah. Elijah. And Elijah represented who? Jesus. And Elisha, who comes after Elijah, represents the church. You guys are so smart. I I bet 1% of the people out there, less than 1%, know these things and kind of can connect these things in their heart. So we've seen these miracles of Elisha. Uh, They teach us as the church how we are supposed to minister to this world. Okay, and so let's, can, let's recap a little bit last week because this is kind of a, a part two or even a part three the last couple weeks. We saw that the king of Syria came down and he was going to attack Israel, right? And then every time he was going down and he was trying to be, surprise them and, and Elisha heard from the Lord and he told the king of Israel, watch out for this certain place over here because over there. And the king of Syria is just getting all upset. Why? Do, who keeps telling him what I'm doing? Who's a spy? And there's no spy. They say, oh, it's Elisha because he's a wizard. And, and so they, they, they go down to get Elisha and Elisha's buddy who's with him, his student, is with him and they surround him with their whole army. He's in Dothan and the servant wakes up he looks outside, and he comes back in and changes his pants because he had a mis- accident, I think. That's, that's what I think happened. But he's very worried. He is very scared because he's surrounded by an impossible army to defend. And so Elisha, he does not worry at all. He's not worried at all. He trusts in the Lord, and he trusts in the word of the Lord, and he prays for his student that he would, he would see the spiritual realm around them, and he prays, and God opens his eyes so he can see the spiritual realities. He opened his eyes, and he saw around the army was thousands of angels, chariots of fire, and that is, catches us up to where we're at right now. Okay, so we pick it up now in chapter 6, verse 17. Before we start reading, let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would teach us from your word because uh, our natural mind can't understand it. We need you to open up the eyes of our hearts like you opened up Elisha's servant's eyes to spiritual realities. Lord, I pray that um, you would heal our hurting right now so that we could focus on you and on the lessons of your word. I pray that you would heal our bitterness. Lord, we would surrender it all to you. We just want to know you more. And I pray that this word would teach us about you. Amen. Amen. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray that open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around him. So, we're, we're backing up to connect these two Bible studies together. And I'm just showing you that Elisha asks God to show his students how the battle is already won. This is important for our Bible study today. The battle is already won. The enemy is surrounding them, but their enemy is surrounded by a stronger force, these angels. So Elisha 
Elisha is living with no fear. No fear at all. And it's not because he's a magical prophet wizard. It's not because he always keeps the rules and his performance is spot on when it comes to his law keeping. It's not because he's earned or deserves anything at all. The reason why Elisha has so much confidence is simply because he believes in God, that God loves him and that God has provided for everything he will ever need. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God loves you? Not, not, not like he loves everyone in the world. Oh, Jesus loves you, I know. Rainbows and butterflies. But no, God loves you. He loves you. He deeply cares for you. And your trials and the hard things that you're going through do not minimize his love in any way. Even your mistakes don't minimize his love in any way towards you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God will always be with you? And that he's already provided anything you will ever need through his son, Jesus. That's the gospel. That's why we're here. But do we believe it? That's the new covenant. That it's all done. It was all finished on the cross. And now we enter into what Jesus finished by believing it. And we trust it and we live our lives on it. And we just stay there in that place of thinking, Jesus did it for me. Jesus accomplished everything I need. The, when we stay there, it means we're abiding in the gospel. We're abiding in Christ. Whenever we say, well, Jesus accomplished a lot, but now I need to go save Denver through my street evangelism. Or I need to go accomplish this, or I need to go. Now, if God puts something on your heart that you should do, then you should give up everything in the world to go be obedient to what he puts on your heart. But it is not to, to win the battle. The war is already over. It's already won. It's already won. I was talking with a brother right before service about how the gospel is so powerful and the gates of hell cannot stop. What, what, do, you, do you ever get confused about that scripture? The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. It's, it can be confusing. You're like, wait a minute, hell, they attack us, but why are they attacking us with gates? And you picture Satan with doors smacking you and you're like, this doesn't make any sense at all. Jesus, you're a goofball. But he wasn't talking about Satan attacking us. He was talking about us attacking Satan's kingdom. With the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God has come and we hold it by believing and we share it when we share the gospel and people who are influenced by his kingdom cannot withstand it. We save all kinds of people. How many of you were once on the other side? Unsaved. Everyone. We were all once a part of that kingdom. And how many of you Felt like Jesus was just a, well, I guess I could do that for a little while. I'll try it out. Or was it more like this? I am guilty. I am done. I, 
I cannot resist what Jesus is doing in my life. His call in my life is so powerful. That's how he comes into our hearts. So, it says, continuing, when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Wow. So here is the miracle, the first part of the miracle that we're talking about today. Last week's miracle was that God opened eyes. This week's miracle is that God is blinding people. But let's see. Let's ask a question here. What do, or does Elisha need to do this in order to have victory over this army? And the answer is no. Elisha already had victory. So why is Elisha blinding these guys? He already had the victory. Elisha, or God had already given him the victory. And see, this is really cool. Elisha is, is now engaged in a, in a warfare, that, but he's fighting from a position of victory. Sometimes I play basketball with my kids. The last few days I've been playing basketball with my kids, and I just dunk all over their faces. I love it because I'm bigger than them. I'm stronger than them. And I, I'm fighting from a position of victory and I just dunk on their faces. And that's the end of that story. <laughs> I just wanted to brag about. But the, the, the hoop is only like this tall right now. So. I can't actually jump. Like I have no vert. <laughs> so why does Elisha pray then this way? Why does he do this? I'm going to give you the answer before we even get to the end. Because Elisha wants to win their hearts. He wants to win their hearts. He could have killed them in a second. Elisha could have called down the angels and said, Okay, boys, round them up. And they could have just been all dead. In fact, one angel killed 185,000 other bad guys at a different time. And the hills are surrounded. So Elisha's like, I could kill you guys so easy right now. But Elisha's not doing that. He's like, I could dunk on your face. But he doesn't do that. He wants to win their hearts. Let me prove it to you. Let's keep going. Now Elisha said to them, this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, that's a key verse, follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. So it was when they had come to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. What is Elisha doing? He has a plan to bless them. He is not angry with them. This army that has come to invade and kill God's people, he's not angry with them. He is compassionate. He is gentle. He leads them. He does not force them. He leads them. Now, is he deceiving them? No. He is leading somewhere that they do not expect, 
but he's not deceiving them. It's never right to deceive somebody. He's going to lead them to Jesus. He's going to lead them to Jesus. How? He is leading them to where they will be loved. He's leading them to a very special place where they can be loved. God is love, right? And they will be introduced to this God through the kindness and love of Elisha, what he's doing. And this pictures for us, you and for me, what the church is supposed to be doing in this world today. We are supposed to love and pray for people that God would open their eyes. This is a very simple thing. We are to love our enemies. And that is the title of today's message, Love Your Enemies. Love your enemies. Elisha loves these guys, even though they're his enemies. And he, through prayer and through leading them and guiding them, and then through what we're about to see, he is going to show them, introduce them to the God that loves them also, to Jesus. He, he had the power to destroy them. And Elisha is such a great example of someone whose heart has been transformed. He doesn't want revenge. He doesn't care about revenge. He wants the heart of these lost sinners to be saved. That's where his heart is. It's so cool. Look what it says here. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw. And they were inside Samaria. Now the king of Israel saw them. And he said to Elisha, uh, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? He says it twice just to make sure Elisha heard. Because he wants to kill them. He's so excited. But he answered and said, You shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you had taken captive with your sword and your bow? No, no, no. Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. See, the king of Israel, we've been introduced to him before. before. He doesn't know or believe God. He doesn't understand God. He doesn't know God's heart at all. Now, some people think that the Old Testament God is different than the New Testament God. You heard that argument before? The God in the Old Testament is so mean and angry. And, rah, 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 rah. and the God in the New Testament is so kind and gentle. And it's just not true. It's not true at all. God never changes. And I'm going to show you a couple of verses from the Old Testament that show what God's heart is for the enemies and the strangers. Okay, Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5. He says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, your enemy, he says, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see his donkey, uh, the donkey of one who hates you, lying under its burden, and you refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. And in Proverbs 25, 21, he says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him bread. Water to drink. 
well, then how can they stay my enemy if I'm being nice to them? Aha! Exactly. Exactly. His heart has always been the same, and his heart has always been love your enemies. If you remember back a couple um, miracles ago, a couple weeks ago when we were studying uh, when the little girl was captured and then Naaman was healed, Naaman was an enemy and God freely healed him. God even taught him how humility and faith was the way that he could receive grace. God has been demonstrating this. God has been teaching, using Elisha to teach this to the people of God, and that's how we need to be used in our world today, is by being, hey, we're going to love our enemies. We're going to love our enemies. Well, how does Elisha demonstrate this for us? I mean, I can, th- or let, let's let, let me forget why I said that. How does God demonstrate loving your enemies? Because I can think of a lot of times like the flood and all the times he said to kill people where God didn't seem to love his enemies. It seems like God is mean. And there is a reason why people say, well, the God of the Old Testament was a meanie face. Well, God is also... In addition to being love, God is also the judge of the world. He's the judge of every person. It is his role, it is his right, and his responsibility to judge evil. And it's his choice of how and when that judgment occurs. He didn't just flood the world because he was mean. There was great reason to flood the world. Everyone's heart was filled with violence. It was corrupted. The nations who were inhabiting the land as the children of Israel were going back into the land when God was bringing them back from their captivity. These nations had given themselves over to worshiping demons and they had corrupted who they were in the very core. And God pronounced a judgment upon them. And he is right and just to judge at all points. And so people get confused and they think that God judging is mean. And it's not mean. It's right. When a criminal gets sentenced uh, to, you know, the death penalty for killing someone, I don't see a bunch of people saying, judges are mean! Do you? Do you see the protests saying, judges are just jerks? No. They pronounced a judgment, and we as a society, we trust our judges and our laws, right? Well, God does the same thing. And that's exactly how people act to him. But he says, in this situation, he says, set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. It says, then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away and they went to their master. So the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. Now look at this. No altar call? <gasps> he just he just serves them and loves them and prays for them. That is it. He never does an altar call. I'm not anti-altar call. But I I'm seeing here what the Bible is teaching me. 
which is that my focus needs to be on what am I doing in this situation for my enemies, for the lost people of the city. Am I loving them? Am I praying for them? And am I serving them? That's what this is focused on. Now, why does he do that? Because God says, I change people's hearts. And you guys don't have to bring everyone in Denver to the Lord. You don't. That's God's, what God does. He uses us when we humble ourselves to do it his way, to love them, to serve them, and to pray for them. Elisha has so much confidence in God's power to change these evil people that Elisha says, hey, go back to your master. Go back to the guy who's telling you to worship demons. Go on, go on, go back. Because Elisha knows that their hearts will never be the same again. They won't be satisfied by what this evil king gives them anymore. And their hearts will remember the love. And God will use your prayers to affect their heart when you just let them go. Hey, yeah, go do your thing. I'm going to be praying for you. He knows, Elisha knows how to save people. How to minister to people in a very real way. The heart. That's where Elisha targets. That's where his, his bow is aimed, is right at the heart. And the heart is, is invisible. We're not talking about the actual blood, pink, blah, blah, blah. That's not what we're talking We're talking about the, the inner part, the soul. Because that's where God works. And Elisha really understands how to live and minister by faith in invisible things. And our hearts, our invisible hearts, are changed by grace, the Bible teaches. And God's love for us is seen through the love God's people have for us. If you remember the prodigal son, you remember in Luke, when the, that parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells when you just focus in that story on the father, you see the father had great faith. He, the, the prodigal son came to him and said, I'm done with you. I don't want to live your life. I don't want to live your way. You're an old, foggy Jesus guy. I hate you. I want to go. I wish you were dead. I wish I could just have my inheritance now. That's basically what he says. My translation. Don't check the accuracy of that. <laughs> No, he, but he does. He wants to go away. He wishes his father was dead. He wants his inheritance early. So his father, who is a loving father and a father who believes in the invisible power of love and grace, he says, okay. And he gives him his inheritance. He's like, I'm not proud. I don't, it, it's, uh, yes, it offends me, but I'm not going to be offended. I'm going to instead love you. I'm going to lay my life down for you. And if you want me dead, we'll, here, we'll act like I'm dead. And you may have my inheritance. You may have your inheritance that I was going to give you. And the prodigal son is like, wow, that's really nice. But I'm still out of here. And he takes it and he goes and he blows it all because his heart is still wicked. And he blows it all, okay? And then he's, he's out there and he finds that the world out there is not very loving. Not very loving. But who has he experienced in his life that was loving? 
his father, right? He remembers the love. And invisibly, God is starting to do a work in him, breaking down his pride, breaking down his self-sufficiency to the point where he says, man, I, I just probably should go back and at least just serve my, maybe I could be like my, one of my dad's slaves, one of my dad's hired hands. Let me, that's what I'll do. I'll go back. Probably being a slave of my dad is better than working for these pig farmers that I work for now. So he goes back. But before he could even get out of his mouth his plan to earn his father's love, what does his father do? He wraps his arms around him. He hugs him. He runs to meet him. He will not let him get his silly plan to earn his love. His father's showing him, I've always loved you. I still love you. Here, let me wrap you in a nice fancy coat and let me put rings on you and bless you and serve you and love you because I've always loved you. I've always loved you. And he's like, well, can't I just serve you? And he's like, I already have a son that does that. That son doesn't understand that I love him either. I wish you guys would just understand, just understand that I love you so much. Now that father got his son back because he believed in the invisible power of loving your enemy allowing God's grace. He prayed for his son, I'm sure. He loved his son, even when his son acted the enemy, acted like a fool. This invisible work of God is what we're talking about today. We can trust it. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, there's the prophecy of the new covenant, which the whole New Testament is how Jesus came and he said, This is how it's all going to work now. I'm going to give my blood. My life is going to be given. It washes away your sin. And now I'm going to inhabit you through the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is going to do a couple things. Number one, it's going to make sure all your sin is washed away. And whenever you sin, you can can just confess it to the Lord and it'll be freely uh, forgiven and washed away. 1 John 1.8. Okay? Now, that's how sin works. Then you'll be able to know me in ways that nobody before has ever known me. You'll be able to know me through heart, deep connection, personal knowledge. You don't have to go to a priest anymore to know God. You can read the, whole, the Bible and the Holy Spirit will teach you himself. How crazy is that? How crazy is that? I remember, just to illustrate that point, your brother Danny, when he was in jail, <laughs> he didn't know the Lord But he read the Bible and he read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to a friend who asked him to read the Bible to him. And just by him reading the Bible, the Holy Spirit taught him. And he received Christ and he became a born-again believer, just the Bible, just the New Testament. It's amazing, right? So the Holy Spirit can and will teach us. That's the second part of the New Covenant. And the third part, which is really neat, is that he writes his laws on our mind, and he writes them on our heart. So this invisible work, I like to think about Jesus being an invisible tattoo artist on our heart. He's in there working, and he's writing his law, so that the the law that's written in the Ten Commandments, we do away with, not, not saying it was wrong in any way, 
But the, but the reason why we have to do away with it is because when we keep it around, we are the problem and we naturally go towards performancism and we naturally go towards how am I doing at keeping these standards and we fall away because we fail all the time. And Jesus says, I don't want you to fall away anymore. So we're doing away with that system and we're coming up with a new system where I write my law, the same law, we still honor God in every part of our life, but he writes it now in the invisible parts of our heart so that when we're doing something and, oh, wait a second, this is wrong. I shouldn't cheat on my wife. We get convicted and our heart is so powerfully changed that we say, no more. I repent. I'm not going to do that again. Because the Holy Spirit does that in our hearts. The Holy Spirit does that. You can't live continually doing sin and be a believer at the same time. The Holy Spirit can't, isn't, isn't comfortable in that environment. If you can go and sin and sin and sin and be just fine, just know you don't yet have the Holy Spirit. You don't. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. Well, I hate conviction. It feels so icky. I don't care. It's designed to draw you back into relationship with Jesus. You were really icky before you came to Jesus. It's okay. He still accepted you. He still calls you. He still draws you. Don't let sin be the reason why you go away from him. Okay, so anyway, this invisible work that God does when we love our enemies is amazing. Now, what keeps us from loving our enemies, do you think? Maybe pride, bitterness. Okay, what else? I'll tell you, for me, the biggest reason, I think probably for you guys too, is fear. Is anyone afraid of unbelievers? Well, we're not supposed to be. We're not supposed to be. Psalm 3.6 says, I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me around me. I will not fear enemies. No, no, no. In fact, I have a different plan of en- what I'm going to do with enemies. And today we're learning our different plan is to love them. Not fear them, love them. Think of someone you love. Did I give you enough time to find one person you love? Okay. (laughs) Think of someone you love. Are you afraid of that person? Now, think of someone you really... Think of someone you really love. Let's say this person you really love just went off the rails and and started attacking you and was going to burn you at the stake or something like that, okay? If you really, really love them, you're not going to be so freaking out about it. You mean like, I love you. I would give my life for you. Even if you 
hate me, even if you hate me. Real love loves even when the, it's not responded back to, even if it's not reciprocated. Real love says, I love you, and it doesn't matter how you behave, it doesn't matter what you do, how you betray me or hurt me, I'm going to love you more and more and more and more. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep loving you. Why? I don't know. I just love you. I love you. This is how God wants us to think about every person in Denver. Even the ones we disagree politically with or disagree with how they've chosen to live their lives or the music they listen to or their habits or anything have a different plan than fearing them. Just know, right now, our plan is to fear them. Most of us fear (laughs) the world. But I'm proposing a new plan. Psalm 27.3, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise up against me, in this I will be confident. What am I going to be confident in? My plan to love them. I'm not going to fear them. I have a plan of action, and I'm confident in my choice. I have a battle plan given to me by the Lord. I'm going to love them like the prodigal father loved his son. But that doesn't make sense. You're enabling him to go, and you're you're just an enabler. It worked. Because grace works. Love works. Wow. Wow. I thought tough love is how I was supposed to behave all the time. And I was the king and protector of tough love. And I'm a jerk to everyone to prove that. No, not always. So what does love look like? I mean, is, is tough love really love? You guys know what I mean when I say tough love? Okay, well, let's read 1 Corinthians 13.4. I'm not saying don't discipline your kids. That's definitely love. There's a way to discipline your kids, that's right, and there's a way that's wrong. If you have anger, it's wrong. Um, okay, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 says, Love suffers long and is kind. So can you discipline your kids with kindness? Good. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own. So do you have any selfish intention at all? It's not love. is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Well, let's just take the first one. Love suffers long. Most of us stop right there when loving our enemies. We jump off the ship right there. I'm not going to suffer for people who don't like me and won't benefit me. I'm not going to be inconvenienced by you. Because a lot of us commit idolatry and we worship convenience instead of worshiping Jesus alone. And we could do a whole study in all of those different attributes, but I thought I'd just nail us all with the first one. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply this real quick to politics. I rarely talk about politics. But I just want to say, And this applies to what we're talking about today. The government is not the church. 
The church is called to love and care for the needy and actually is equipped to love our world and care for our world. Should we care about the needy? Yes. Immigrants? Yes. Criminals? Yes. All of them are our responsibility. It is, in truth, not the government's responsibility to deal with criminals. It's ours. And when the government cares for them, all these different people groups, it becomes welfare. And their hearts, the hearts of these people, are not ministered to because they have no connection with the people of God and the people of God aren't praying for them and the people of God aren't serving them and loving them when it's the government do it. It's just a check in the mail. Oh, well, you do get to meet the lovely people at the Medicaid or Social Security office. The way it should work, let me tell you guys the way it should work is that the church should provide for and help every needy person in this country, period. There should be no social services. There should be no social security. There should be no nothing. So who's failing? The government is trying to be the church, and they're terrible at it because they don't worship God, and they don't have the love of God and the spirit of God in their heart. They hate God. But they're trying to be the church. And the church is letting them, for the most part, because it's easier to let them than to take the responsibility for these people ourselves. We can focus on living the American dream when we aren't burdened by the poor and the sick and the needy. Do you know how the church really took over Europe and the Roman Empire? In the few hundred years after Jesus, the church just kind of moved into Europe and the Roman Empire was, was very evil and bad, okay? And the church used love and loving their enemies to just basically take over the whole continent. And by the time Constantine came, he looked around and there was more Christians than non-Christians in the, in, the, in the continent, in his kingdom, in his empire. And so he said, well, we're a Christian nation. And that's a very... Simplistic way of saying it. But Christians did this. They loved their enemies. And that showed in real, real ways by they built hospitals. You know, every hospital, how it started was Christians saying we love our enemies. You know, secular government hated hospitals. They thought sick people should just die. Only when Christians came and said, no, these people have value, we need to love them. This is the only time people in this world decided to care for sick people. Christians started orphanages. You know what the government's solution for baby, unwanted babies was? Put them in the street and we will sweep them away. It was called infanticide. It was very, very popular. Everyone would have babies if there was any any uh, a bad thing or mark or weird thing that they didn't like about their kid, they would just put them in the street. And Christians were like, oh my goodness, these are people. We love them. So the Christians would come and they would pick up all the babies every evening and take them home and raise them. And guess how they would raise them? 
as loving Christians. And these people would grow up and they would do the same thing. Well, after a few generations, the pagans basically died out. Because it's easy. When you worship yourself, it's just death. So anyway, the Christians kind of overtook. They started schools. You know, government never has been involved in schools. Public education was not a thing until very recently because Christians ran every school in the world. There was no such thing as school. You're like, oh, I wish I could go back then. But the, every social program you can think of, the root of it is the church. And now our society is so weird that they're turning around saying, well, it's Christians that are the, the problem with all of these different things. And, and if you hear people talking about history, they're so uninformed. They say, oh, the, the Middle Ages, the church was just on top of everybody and they're so mean. And, and the Middle Ages, the church was really, no. That is not, the church was the only people doing any one thing for anybody, being loving. And it worked. It worked. Now, it doesn't mean the church wasn't, didn't get corrupt over time because when you get to 1200s, 1100s, 1200s, 1300s, the church was a big mess, needed reformation. Ah. Okay, that was my soapbox. When government, one last point, when government is run without a Christian heart, it is all about power. And I want you guys, when you're watching the news, to see if it's not a Christian speaking, it's about power. Just know it. Always, every situation. If it's not a Christian with a born-again heart speaking, it's about power. I don't care what they say about their social program. It's not real. It's about power, control, because that's what human government is all about. It's the root. They can't get away from it no matter how much they say, this is a social program and we care for the poor and we care. No. Unless it's for Jesus' sake, it's not. All right, so turn now to 1 John chapter 2. Now, I have challenged you today already once to come to Wednesday night service. And I challenge you again. Challenge accepted. Wednesday night, we, we, we prayed over this verse, and I told them that I would share a little bit about it today um, because we're just going through 1 John very lightly. We're not doing an in-depth study on Wednesday nights. We're just kind of encouraging ourselves through 1 John and letting the Lord serve us, and then we're praying and worshiping. But in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, is where we're at. <clears throat> now, power is what people want, what government wants, but the church is not motivated. That's not the mission of the church. In the church, we know that the greatest of all is the servant of all, right? And the most respected in all of the kingdom of God is the one who humbles himself the lowest. The most influential in the kingdom of God is the most loving. Okay, that's the way the kingdom of God works. Never about power, popularity, influence, those things. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. So he says, this has always been God's heart to love your enemies, love people. The com old commandment, which is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you. So now he's saying, well, there is kind of a new aspect to it because there's this new way that we love people. The Old Testament, it was the, it was the law, but now we have an actual ability 
to love people. He says this new commandment, which thing is true in him. When it means it becomes true when you're in Christ. It becomes new. You know it's right to love people. The world knows it's right to love people, but they don't. They say they do. They may even do things to show that they do, but it's not real because you can only truly love in Christ. It's only true in him. It's only true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because darkness has blinded his eyes. The king of Israel in our story that we studied was walking in darkness. What did he say? Hey, can we kill him? Hey, let's kill him. That's pretty much the opposite of love. How about that? See, the government, <clears throat> the king of Israel, the government doesn't know what to do. They don't have the light because they don't have Jesus. They've literally rejected Jesus from being a part of any of it. But Elisha, who represents who? The church. Elisha walks in the light, and this miracle shows us how the lost are in the dark. The reason why Elisha blinded their eyes and led them is because it was showing their spiritual reality to them. You guys are dark, but I can lead you. I know the truth and I'm going to show you that I know the truth. I'm going to build this respect and rapport among you by leading you and then by loving you. Leading you and loving you and praying for you. Unearned, undeserved love. These were enemies. And I find it amazing how this part of 1 John talks about the darkness and the blinding all it just fits so perfectly with the miracle that we just read. So the question is, are you a part of the solution like Elisha or are you blind like the men? If you're convi convicted, if you've been convicted this morning by your lack of love for your enemies, even your friends, then repent. Call out to the Lord in humility for a new heart. Listen to the searching of his Holy Spirit when he convicts you of certain pleasures that you take instead of serving others and surrender them all to him. It's all or nothing. Have you surrendered all? Jesus did. He showed us how. The only real and true complete victory is total surrender. I'm not in charge. It belongs to you. My possession, my time, my plans, and most importantly, my behavior, my love for other people. God, you're in control. What do you ask me to do? Serve a meal? Okay, I'm going to serve a meal. Well, how can we do any of this? 
How can we be that? Only by falling in love with God, allowing him to serve you and to love you and to bless you and desiring nothing but that in your life, rejoicing in the Lord. It makes me more happy when I open up the word and God gives me a word for that day, a blessing. He, he speaks to me in the word this morning. He did it. Gave me a blessing. Makes me more happy than anything in this world. And I know it's never going to be taken away. And I'm learning to never rejoice in anything that's not that. I want to rejoice in that, that relationship, that presence of the Lord. A wife is not looked down upon if she takes delight in her husband. Think about that. A wife, no one ever is like, look how much that wife loves her husband. What a dork. That doesn't exist in our world. And we are the bride of Christ. It is okay for you to take all of your satisfaction in Christ alone. It is okay for you to to look only to him. And here, test yourself. What makes you happiest? The love of God or your stuff? The love of God or your job? What do you take delight in? When you're thinking about, man, my life is awesome, what is it that's making you think that? If it's your, if it's your spouse, you're still committing idolatry. It is only the Lord. Now, they can be a huge blessing in your life, but it can't be what you rejoice in totally and completely. It has to be the Lord first. Or even your marriage, which is a good thing, can become idolatry. So many good things can become idolatry when we worship them. 